Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 991 with Ellen Yin. That's the ingredient that I think is so under um, appreciated is um, your network of supporters and fans and friends and family that you do have to build over a period of time. And it may not be that you're learning, uh, you know, more technical skills or anything like that, because let's face it, busting a table in 1990, 1987 and busting a table in 2023 are kind of similar the number of people who can support you and help you along the way. And those relationships are so key. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time. But the ways to find out what's actually happening with your guests are terrible. That's where Ovation comes in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave you positive reviews and unhappy guests to share what happened. And it gives you specific ideas to improve. Ovation, it's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash Unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's OvationUp.com. Up.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60 day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder and co-owner of High Street Hospitality Group, Ellen 
Yin. Ellen, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am unstoppable, Eric. Yeah, yes, that is what we like to hear. And I'm super excited for today's conversation. You're the reason why we came to Philadelphia. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Uh, Eli had such amazing things to say about you. Uh, all the, the you know attention you're getting, the the accolades you're getting. Recent, since 2018, four nominations, uh, outstanding restaurant toward 2000. 18, 2019, 2022, 2023. I mean, you're, you're doing amazing work here. Thank uh, you. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today and how you've built this uh, growing empire. But let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Keep pushing. Keep pushing. I have a similar one. I say just ain't nothing to it but to do it or just just keep showing up. Just do it. Exactly. <laughs> so why is that the mantra you chose to bring to, to today's conversation? Well, I think that when you are doing things and you're an entrepreneur, you can get down. You know, I mean, like there are a lot of obstacles. Things typically go wrong. Um, and you need that something that keeps you going. And, uh, um, you know, they always say... Um, that um, not to, you know, uh, I forget what the saying is when you were a kid, not to quit. What was it that they I mean, there's tell you? so many sayings. So many out there. sayings. But, think, yeah. um, but I mean, I think particularly when you're in, um, as an entrepreneur, sometimes you're alone because the buck stops here, you know. I mean, even if you're in a partnership or anything like that, it all flows up, right? Yeah. And uh, it can be very frustrating and sometimes feel lonely and yeah. i think that that for me keeps me focused and moving forward yeah and you've had some real hard curveballs thrown at you in your career uh, just from my research and, and talking to eli and the the challenges you guys have had to overcome together uh, so i'm sure that'll come out in the story i can't wait to talk about how you keep that mindset of yeah. just showing up mm -hmm. um i'm sure we'll get there but where does it make sense to start sharing your story like where when did you know that the hospitality industry is your industry take us back well, I think that so many people in this country start out loving the hospitality industry because they worked in a restaurant yes. in high school. Mm -hmm. And that's where it began for me. I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the daughter of uh, immigrants from China. And I grew up in a town in New Jersey where there were not very many um, Asian families. And my parents were very focused on me being a great student because they wanted to make sure that I was able to support myself. And so I wanted a job just to get out of the house. And I picked the hospitality industry because my mother was an incredible cook and entertainer. And I just thought, well, that was the natural thing. I mean, you know, what else could I be doing? I'm not going to be a newspaper delivery person because I'm a nerd and I don't <laughs> go out. Um, so this seemed a little bit more social and um, appealing to me. So I started working at a little Chinese restaurant in uh, my hometown. And I, I was, uh, uh, it was a Mongolian barbecue restaurant. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. I sliced my finger and uh, then I decided um, that I should go work in maybe a bigger restaurant. So they had a sister restaurant and they promoted me to a line cook. So what was the rationale of their slice finger, bigger restaurant? How'd you make that leap? That maybe <laughs> that my sole job wouldn't just be slicing okay. meat. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so I started working at um, their sister restaurant and I learned how to use the fryer and, you know, I cooked fried rice and things like that. And, 
you know, this was the, the 70s. So, you know, rolling back to Asian food in the 70s, it was pretty basic. And I suddenly decided I wanted to be in the front of the house. And uh, there was a French restaurant around the corner from my house that was um, pretty posh. It was called the Fromagerie. And uh, <laughs> I decided I'm going to go in there and just apply for a job. And uh, I, walk, I walked in. I was terrified. I remember seeing all the crystal. And I was a little bit of a klutz when I was younger. Still am. <laughs> Once a klutz, always a klutz. Right, exactly. And I just... Um, went in and I got the job as a bus girl to start. And this family, this German family, took me in and trained me how to be a, a, a busser, a co-check girl, a, a bartender, a server. And the thing about this job was not, you know, I mean, actually, to be quite honest, my family, um, you know, we had pe- peculiar tastes. We would go to McDonald's and order everything plain. Um, so it wasn't really fast food because you didn't get anything the way it was supposed to be. We would order like a Big Mac with no cheese, no pickles, <laughs> no nothing. Um, and so we couldn't go through the drive through. So anyway, um, we, we did not eat cheese. We didn't eat anything that was creamy, buttery or anything like that. Was that like, like a that. cultural thing? Yeah, or a cultural health? thing. Like, my, what, was, what was the reason behind that? My mother primarily cooked Asian cuisine and did it really, really well. But we always wanted to feel the sense of belonging and we wanted to eat at McDonald's and we wanted to go to, you know, eat a TV dinner for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, and uh, when I started working at this restaurant, I never really felt a sense of belonging in my hometown because I started there in sixth grade. We had moved there and I think I never really felt like I fit in. Mm. And so the restaurant was the first place that I felt really accepted. It didn't matter who you were, what experience you had, as long as you were working for the team, uh, you were you were included. And yeah. um, you know they would take me out for burgers after work and a beer, and you know I mean I, I had a great time there, and I never really felt that that feeling from any other position that I had. Like I mean, you get into like the deals, the details of how they showed you. Like their appreciation for you and how you felt seen by like taking you out and doing all these mm-hmm. things. But why is it so important in your perspective today, reflecting back and knowing how to make people feel like a part of the team? Why is that so important? Well, I think that, you know, back when I started the restaurant, finding team members was a lot easier. And now, you know, there are so many choices and unemployment is low and, you know, we have to compete for employees and team members. So, it's really important to feel a sense of belonging because you want the people who are spending the time, their time, their valuable time with you to feel some sense of mission, to feel that they are part of this, this, this team that is trying to provide great service and great food experience every single night and be excited about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, yeah. And all honestly, it. I think that's the thing that I like the most about this industry. As I learn more about myself, it's really, I just love restaurant people. I love the camaraderie. I love being a part of the team. I love the, the group of people. It's not just coworkers, but you generally end up being friends with these people. You socialize with these people. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it, there's such a unique individual that's drawn to this industry, mm-hmm. hardworking, charismatic, socially, emotionally intelligent, like just like, it, it just sucks you in if you're that kind of person. And it's I'm- also very diverse. And the type of people, they could be... I, I, we had an Indonesian PhD who was a dishwasher. We had an Indonesian chef who 
was in charge of a French kitchen. Um, you know, just the type of people, artists, people who are a little bit off the beaten path. I think all these different types of people come together and they create something that's not replicable by anything else. You know what I mean? Like one restaurant can't be identical to the other because of all the different people who yeah. come together. Yeah. And not just the people, but just the, there's so much. I mean, there's no two restaurants that are exactly the same, even in the world of franchises. Right. Even when they're trying right. to make every restaurant mm-hmm. exactly the same. There's so many variables that make every restaurant different, like especially the people that are working there. Right, so right. I can see why you. So at this point, are you saying to yourself, like, this is my path? This is what I want to do? Is this, Are you committed at this point or is it still a job? Yeah, no, at this point, I'm thinking to myself, I really want to open a restaurant. Where can I go to college where I can really pursue whether I can do that or not? So I am curious, did, did what made you fall in love? Was it the people you were working with? Was it being seen and appreciated and feeling like you actually fit someplace? Was that what made you fall in love with the industry? That and I love service. Mm, what about service? Well, first of all, there's not many careers you can have where you have immediate gratification. Yeah. You know what I mean? People come in, they're in a great mood, hopefully, and you are going to see whether or not they enjoy their evening within two hours. Instant gratification. You know what I mean? Yeah. Versus my other career where I was helping a healthcare organization build a insurance company and there is no gratification other than the project is never ending because after you start it, it's just operating. Or um, when I worked at Thomas Jefferson University, we were building ambulatory care centers. And by the time I opened my first restaurant fork, we were still deciding where those ambulatory care centers would be. Nothing against them, but their process is different. And in the hospitality industry, it is so gratifying to one see that every single night, but also the people who come in. My goal for everyone who comes to be part of our team is to grow. Yeah. So if whether they stay with me or not, it's unrealistic for me to believe that every person who comes in is going to stay with me for 25 years. Right. That's not possible. No one's going to treat your restaurant the way you treat your restaurant, except oh. that, like, I mean, no, they're not going to own it like you own it. Yeah. Right? But I mean, You know, people want to grow. And especially back then when it was only one restaurant, it was, you know, that top position is only one person. You know what I mean? So that was one of the reasons that we wanted to grow. That is the best reason to grow, in my opinion, because you ran out of opportunity for people. Mm -hmm. And the only way to continue to provide opportunity is by growing it. Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. So um, it sounds like you knew you wanted to be involved with restaurants, but you still went down a different path. Um, I'm curious, what, why why didn't you put all of your eggs into the... the like, you didn't go to school for hospitality, did you? Uh, well, I almost did. I, I First, I came to Penn because I thought, well, if I'm going to own a restaurant, I better know something about business. And so I applied to Penn and um, came to Penn. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged, to, to be quite honest. I mean, it, again, it was one of those feelings where I came in. It was a large group. I'm not one of those people who just goes with the herd... herd uh, mentality and I just kind of felt you know this passion of restauranting was isolated to just me not yeah. other people who were my classmates and so I actually tried to transfer to Cornell and I was accepted but then when I went there I have this horrible fear of cold and <laughs> Ithaca isn't really exactly the um, the place you want to be if you're afraid of cold yeah, and the I other thing that. was I loved working at the fromagerie so much that I picked Philadelphia because it was close to my home and I could go home on any 
particular weekend and just work if I wanted to, which was kind of hiding from the original problem of not belonging right. um, while I was at Penn. So but Penn was your, your master. That wasn't, that wasn't your, no, undergrad that too. Was your undergraduate too. Okay, undergrad too. But then when I, came, I took a semester off and I came back and I was just like, well, maybe my, my finding this belonging is the job. So I went to the French restaurant that was on 34th and Sansom called La Terrasse. And I got hired there as a server, and I fell in love with that place. And the same feelings that I had that I that I had at the Fromagerie, I actually felt similarly at La Terrasse. And so I just kept going with it. And I also was writing a business plan for a restaurant that happened to be at the corner of Third and Arch, which is only a block away from Fork. Um, and that was one of my, my management projects was to write this business plan. And I learned that you need a lot of money to open a restaurant. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so I knew that that wasn't realistic. My parents were like, this is unacceptable. Well, you need curious. to like, um, yeah. you know. I mean, I've heard through speaking to other past guests with Asian heritage, Asian, Asian mm-hmm. background. I know there's a lot of pressure from parents to get into like becoming a doctor or the traditional like like more I don't know higher paying careers like uh, is, what, did you get that pressure from your parents? Well, of course, I was a really good student, and you know my father was a PhD in physics, and you know really wanted me to be able to support myself. And you know the stereotype of a restaurant is that it's so hard. I mean, yeah. you know, it is so hard to succeed and they didn't want me to have that difficult of a life and they just really felt like I should not put all my eggs in one yeah. basket. I was curious how they felt about you when you said, I, I want to do this. I want to be in the hospitality industry. My father was begging me to come work for his company. Um, and I was just like, I just don't see that. I have no passion for it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't see myself being working working for bell labs i mean i'm horrible at science and you know i just couldn't couldn't picture it yeah um but you know i think that they accepted that i was not going to be part you know my two younger brothers are both engineers and um i think they accepted that i was not built the same way as them so uh the fromagerie you spent a considerable amount a considerable amount of time there like all throughout your under your undergraduate in, in in high school too just high school oh, okay. and maybe freshman year. But once I moved to Philadelphia officially, I started working at La Terrasse. And, you know, maybe in your mind that that experience was so um, shaping, yeah. you know. Uh, but La Terrasse was a really incredible place and it gave birth to a lot of restaurants in Philadelphia. And it was really a very um, fun place to be, yeah. especially in the 80s. It was a little crazy. Uh and, um, you know, yeah. I, I loved it. We learned some great lessons from the fromagerie of just m- the importance of making people feel welcomed in a mm-hmm. part of the team and seen and valued, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think you grew the most? What was the biggest impressions that La Terrasse made on you? How, like, was there a key mentor? Were there pivotal points for you in your early career at this, at this time? Well, you know, I got fired from La Terrasse. Oh, really? Is there a story here? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, they they had several ownership changes. This was kind of toward the... You know, La Terrasse had been open since like the 60s or something crazy like that. And it had a long history of being, you know, a place on University of Pennsylvania um, for graduate students and undergraduate students. And, you know, it had a great... To work or eat? To eat. Okay. And it had this great Portuguese wine program. I mean, it was so it was so on point 
1987 and now like chartreuse and falernum and all these things that are in vogue lateras had it all yeah. you know and uh, it really taught me how um organizations work the woman who ran the bar there was just really organized and i just learned so much from her and how to organize um the bar program can you get specific can you give like little like specific clues as to what like an organized bar program looks like or is that too specific do you think well i mean it's it wasn't too specific but just to give people an idea of like what life was like in the 80s you know we started our day at like 9 30 in the morning for an 11 30 opening and that included going to the bank getting the money um going to the warehouse picking up booze uh you know Juicing all the orange juice, lime juice, lemon juice, preparing the um, cigarettes for the cigarette case, <laughs> polishing all the bottles. I mean, like, was the, there a checklist or was this all mind? Like, like, oh, memory? no, there was that was that's mostly what I learned about yeah. is that you have to have a checklist yeah. and you have to organize it by either day or by person or whatever. There's and, so many details. Like, yeah, unless so many details. And there's so many distractions. Like, you need something to bring you back to where did I leave off? Yeah. You know, because it's so easy to look over something in this industry. Yeah. Um, keep going. But I had never worked at a place like this. I mean, it was a bar. Uh, and when I became a bartender, I mean, I might not get home until 545 in the morning. And that wasn't from partying all night. That was from cleaning the bar. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, th- that was just what we did. Yeah. And four um, hours later, the next crew is coming in. <laughs> right. Exactly. So exactly. were there struggles for you early in your career? Do you remember there being any specific challenges associated with just the working in front of house in general, and especially for a well-known restaurant like the Fromagerie. Not the Fromagerie, the La Trasse. La Trasse. No, I, 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 I mean, maybe I didn't perceive it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was just a bartender. I wasn't in management or yeah. anything like that. So I was just one of many people who worked through that organization. And it was pretty diverse. And again, like I said, there there were career servers, career chefs, um, but also, um, you know, very eclectic people as well, students as well. So, um, you know, I think the biggest challenge for me was just accepting that I wanted uh, that I didn't want to go with the herd mentality that I wasn't going to be an investment banker or management consultant. Yeah. And there was a lot of pressure, not just from my parents, but from everybody around you that this is the way to go and this is what you're supposed to do. Right. Um, I think it's changed a lot because there are so many more options. And I think that, um, entrepreneurship has become increasingly an option when you see how many young people are going immediately into entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, it is a career path. It's yeah. just different. Especially in, in the hospitality and food and beverage in general right now, there's so much diversifying happening right now. Different. Mm-hmm. I think for the longest time, like we, like there was like the, 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 the cookie cutter model of a restaurant that we mm-hmm. would go work for a successful restaurants, learn what they're doing and just repeat it in our own businesses. Mm-hmm. But we're really challenging the business model today, especially with digital mm-hmm. and being able to get outside of the traditional business model. Um, there's so many, if you're passionate about food and beverage, there's so many different verticals for you now. There's, yeah. This made me think of that because you said the, you know, with the entrepreneurism, like mm-hmm. if you can dream something up, you can will it to, into reality. Right. You exactly. Know? And there's so much malleability today mm-hmm. with digital, like, I don't know, assets at our disposal. Uh, so why did you get fired? And how long were you at? Like, was it from, you said sophomore year and you were there for postgrad too, right? Yeah. Eric, I don't even remember why I got fired. It was just like, a, like, a, you know, a very emotional. Did you talk back to somebody? 
no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't even remember. I mean, I'm half joking because everybody was getting fired. You know what I mean? It so was it was just new management. They were new just- management, and they, you know, like if something was changing and we didn't like it, then they were just like, "Well, you're fired." Then, yeah. <laughs> you know so, I mean? so from your perspective as an owner now, do you think they were just trying to wipe the the slates the slates clean so they could start new with a new culture and new? They don't because it's hard to take over a company sometimes and have old employees who are used to the old way. I don't think it was the new new people. I think it was more just the change and the pressure of the change that made people emotional. You know what I mean? But that wasn't, I mean, that was really not, I'm half joking when I say that because uh. I just went next door to the White Dog Cafe uh. after that. <laughs> and, you know, the person who really did become somewhat of a mentor, the, um, Judy Wicks was the owner and Judy is incredible. I mean, she really brought farm to table to life in Philadelphia um, she also used the restaurant as a social mission platform. So she would have these trips that she would take people to Nicaragua or Vietnam, these third world countries, because she wanted to, you know, bridge the culture. And what was the name of this restaurant? White Dog Cafe. White Dog. Um, so I love that. It seems like she was kind of a mover and shaker because I think conscious capitalism is, is a kind of a term right that we use today but social mission tying some type of social cause mm-hmm. purpose to your business uh she was it sounds like she was a leader in that sense she was a leader in that sense and not only that um you know really bringing that farm to table all her chefs were really passionate about you know the connection with the farms Can and time stamp this for us like where this are is, we this is 1988 88 so it's still like 10 years before you open your own place uh yeah, yeah so um real so how long were you with uh, Judy? I wasn't there very long, but the other person who was there as well was Wendy Bourne, who was the owner of Metropolitan Bakery. And uh, so, you know, this core group of people, they were integral to the Philadelphia um, food scene history. So that was to speak. Wendy, you said? Wendy, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, at that point, I realized that I'm not going to be a restaurateur and I have to find a real job. So what made you think you weren't going to be a restaurateur? Why? Uh, well, exactly for the reason that, um, that I wasn't going to be able to raise the capital. Mm. And I think that that is the, that is the reason why, um, it is so difficult for people to just immediately launch their own restaurant at like age 23, because you need that network. And that's the, that's the, that's the ingredient that I think is so under, um, appreciated is um, your network of supporters and fans and friends and family that you do have to build over a period of time. And it may not be that you're learning, uh, you know, more technical skills or anything like that, because let's face it, busting a table in 1990, 1987 and busting a table in 2023 are kind of similar. <laughs> but The art of busting has not changed. The much. art of busting has not changed. <laughs> but, um, but the number of people who can support you and help you along the way. And those relationships are so key. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I wound up, um, getting a job, you know, at this time you had to go through the inquire <laughs> to find the classifieds to find a job. And I found a job at a local advertising agency and they, they did represent a lot of restaurants and one thing I learned was not to burn any bridges. And, um, you know, I really thought I was, um, you know, I thought I, I, I was like, thought I was 35 years old at the time when I was 22 years old. I was one of those type people that see that I felt older than I was. And, um, so this, um, this advertising firm gave me the opportunity to be a salesperson. And I realized 
sales is really hard and you have to be able to accept rejection because 95% of the people that you talk to aren't interested in your product. (laughs) And I really gained appreciation for that. I then worked for another ad agency that I unfortunately got laid off from and they sent me for career counseling as a benefit of being, you know, discharged. And, um, they said, you know, the, the, the career coach was just like, you're really good with people. You should be in fundraising or something like that. And, and I was just like, oh, huh. hey, now you're a restaurateur again. <laughs> right, exactly. So I ended up working for the American Heart Association and I was a field director, basically recruiting volunteers who, you know, you have to motivate because they're not being paid. And that was something that really also impacted me because if you can get people to do something that they're not being paid for, then not it's like working in the restaurant it's like working in the restaurant industry right (laughs) no i mean seriously i mean nobody should be paid nobody should be working for somebody and not getting paid but yeah and that's one of the things we're trying to change by creating awareness and stuff like this but for the longest time i mean then you don't the restaurant industry is not known for getting people rich you know no but being a volunteer is something that you're giving your time and your passion and your energy to and you have to get something out of it i think danny meyer was the one that said you know when you hire people they're essentially volunteering for you because they could work for so many different places that they're choosing right. to work for you. They're right. volunteering their time with you. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm completely sharing his perspective. But do you know the reference I'm talking about? He mentioned. I it never heard that before. But yeah. um, but working in a volunteer organization was very eye opening. And also, we had to work with committees, so everything had to be by consensus. And building consensus means that you have to talk to a lot of people. And I think that really also helped my career because, Politics. you know just trying to get anything done by committee is really difficult. <laughs> right. Uh, so I mean, you, you dropped a lot on us there. Um, I do kind of want to spend some time. You said Judy was a huge mentor. Judy and Wendy were huge mentors to you. In what sense? Well, women who became successful um, and believed in something and were able to achieve not just the financial component, but also to achieve their values, to include their values and social beliefs as part of their overall mission. How do you start living differently because of their influence? Well, when I when I first started envisioning Fork, or whatever that restaurant was going to be named, um, I didn't know until the very end. But when I first started thinking about the restaurant, I wanted it to be some place where people felt this belonging, but also would contribute to the community. So that was always something that was really important to me. And I learned that from from them, um, you know, and what they did for the community and and bringing people together. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was a period where the restaurant industry, it, it started as such a transformative industry and like literally restaurants were necessary to start towns when the America was being formed. Right. And it right. was like the hub of a community. Mm-hmm. And then it, it became more transactional over time as we didn't really need restaurants to c- get your mail, to meet mm-hmm. people, to talk politics, right. all this stuff. We started like, it became more just a place to get food. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we forgot like the, our role and like what happens when we, when we make it about community and supporting community and br- bring, being a place to bring people together to, to talk. Right. 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 Well, that's exactly right, because, uh, you know, when we first started looking for a location for Fork, I didn't really have any idea where in the city I was going to be, but there was something about Old City that really grabbed me, and at the time, Philadelphia was just recovering from, you know, a 
economic downturn. And so the mid nineties, you know, there were, you know, the number of restaurants that were opening was not escalating like it has been over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. But, uh, old city really appealed to me because there was something happening and I love being part of something that's growing and happening. And what was happening? What was happening was that the city just finished widening the, the, um, market street from a two lane street to a four lane street, I think. Something, something like that. Renovating, renovating, you know, the sidewalk, side, uh, streetscape. And, uh, Market Street was Old City was really the last place in Center City that hadn't really been developed in a sense. There was this great artist community, and I've always kind of been a little bit of an artsy person, so I like the idea of all the galleries. And um, Old City is very funky, and it has warehouses, and it was con- it kind of separates with the historic park and society hill which is a residential neighborhood and so for me i just thought market street would be the perfect place and at the time the city was talking about what would happen in east market street if market street could connect the new convention center to the waterfront Mm. and um that 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 was what made me excited about this neighborhood I don't know about foot traffic, but it was more that there was something exciting that yeah. was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So you you also talked about the importance of networking. I think this is this is absolutely key. One of the biggest. I mean, if if, if somebody comes up to me and says, "Eric, I want to own a restaurant someday," they're nineteen, twenty, twenty one years old. Mm-hmm. I would say, go work for the best, bust your butt, and find out who's who. Figure out where because you're going to need an army of people to come with you. I feel like sometimes uh, if you want to be the best, it's, it's about the people you surround yourself yeah. with. Right. So what do you learn about networking and maybe dive deeper into what you meant by that? Well, like you said, you do need a huge network. I wasn't quite thinking about um, team members. Okay. I was thinking more about, um, you know, investors, not necessarily investors because we kind of skipped a big chapter of my life, which was, going to graduate school <laughs> and and yeah and i met my my business partner roberto sella there and um he was super passionate about wine and he ended up staying in philadelphia versus going to new york city and a friend of mine said you know what just you know be friends with roberto he 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 doesn't know anybody and he's staying in philadelphia and you guys will be great friends and we started having dinner parties and just loving entertaining and um found out that we both had this passion about food and and wine and he was really excited about the prospect of being in the restaurant industry because then he would have some place to drink his wine instead of, you know, <laughs> like the PLCB was kind of a mess during that time. So, um, but the, the, um, what I meant by, um, by network was like, who's going to come support this restaurant? Yeah. Like your name, people like, yeah, just, just, just knowing. People. I mean, I'm not, I didn't come through the restaurant industry. Like a lot of people, I, you know, many people who are opening restaurants have been working someplace and, They've gradually moved their way up. They were a line cook. They then become a sous chef. Then they become a chef. And now they're going to break out on their own and open their own restaurant. Or they, um, you know, they, they, they are a front of house person and they really want to open their own bar or restaurant. And again, they work in the industry and make their way up. I kind of did do that, but I had such a large period of space between the time that I opened 
and the most recent restaurant that I had worked at that I didn't really know anyone, you know? So I knew that I had to have somebody in my arsenal that could, A, know what they were doing because, again, I never managed a restaurant. So you're talking about the gap between transitioning away from the restaurant industry to go work in, I think, yeah. the advertising and all right. this other stuff exactly. you're doing to when you came back to the industry. Yeah. I was curious about that gap. Um, so what was your solution? Just like, how did, how was Roberto a part of that solution? Well, Roberto was a part of that solution because he's been like my sounding board forever. Um, and also is an incredible business person, but, uh, we ended up partnering. We knew that we had to find a chef because neither of us knew how to operate a restaurant. And so we had to find a chef who knew what they were doing. And so finding a chef when you're not in the in- industry is like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. And so I just started talking to people from the white dog that I worked with before and people that, um, you know, my friends from the, from La Terrasse, if they knew anybody. And I somehow was connected to this woman who was, um, a sous chef at the white dog. And, uh, she had been working someplace in Chestnut Hill, which is another community nearby. And we ended up becoming partners and Anne Marie really brought the aesthetic of of the farm to table concept and um, uh, her knowledge of vendors, her knowledge of the industry, the, her knowledge of how a restaurant works to um, to our operation, and um, and then also my I had you know I also had been living in Philadelphia for ten years or so, and I also had you know a kind of eclectic mix of friends and many of them had worked in restaurants before and and so um, they connected me to somebody named Tony DeMellis who actually waited on me when I graduated from college if you can believe it at Carolina's this other (laughs) restaurant but he was an artist and he came along and he kind of added um, some sort of credibility to our operation because he had worked in the hospitality industry and people knew who he was. Got it, got yeah. It. So, I mean, this kind of reminds me of one of the pieces of advice I got early on. Like I think well, maybe within the first 100 episodes of restaurant unstoppable for reference, you're going to be episode 991. So, <laughs> uh, it's open a restaurant where you have roots. People don't necessarily buy what you're doing or why they, they buy why you're doing it. And it's about relationships. Yeah. People want to give money to their friends, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, I think it was smart for you to, to, to know that you need to build that network early mm-hmm. on. So you said you had, so was Anne Marie a partner, like a business partner? Was Anne Marie was a business partner and, was um, Roberto just an investor or was he, Roberto was an investor, Got but it. he also was our original wine director. Got it. So, uh, so it was the three of us that opened and, you know, our goal was just to be open for a year and, um, I remember when we first opened this place, it was it was a challenge because um, we didn't just go for, you know, a little 500 square foot space. This is a 2,500 square foot restaurant with a liquor license that we acquired and um, 65 seats, which at the time would be considered medium. I think if you think about the time frame that we opened, 1997, there were a lot of high-end restaurants and then there were like Philadelphia is known for the BYOB scene, which is um, a great way to enter the marketplace. I don't know why we didn't go that direction. I think it was because of the wine program that Roberto wanted, but we didn't go that direction. We were able to get a liquor license for a really good price. I mean, right now a liquor license is like 150, yeah. and now we got it for 21,000. Yeah. I, I am curious, knowing being so exposed to the industry now over 25 years, being mm-hmm. exposed even before that when you were working, um, knowing what you know now, would you have done something? Would you have tried to start smaller, like? 
No, because okay. I thought I was small. Okay. I thought we were small. Yeah. Um, and if it's weird, I think like the world we live in now, um, there are more opportunities to start small and scale over time mm-hmm. with like pop-ups and things like yeah. that. And mm-hmm. like, let, like let your name, you can build your brand online, right? Mm-hmm. Build your network online. And then once you kind of have a following, you can leverage that to like scale yeah. as you get cash. Eric, unfortunately, I'm one of those weirdos. Like I had a vision and I was just like, um, it's like I was just like it's got to be this or nothing. I feel like that's like the newer generation. I think they're. I don't think when you came up, I don't think it was as easy to get your name out there and do it like some people are today with pop ups and the like ghost yeah, kitchens right, and stuff exactly, like that. Exactly. Like all, right now, all you need is a website and like an online ordering portal and a ghost kitchen, and you can start and scale into something. You didn't have that privilege, is what I'm trying to say. Right. Exactly. I mean, like the internet was barely um, just getting started. <laughs> yeah, it was being exactly, born. Right. Know? It was yeah. being born. Uh, we were one of the first people to have a website, so that was pretty cool. But it was dial-up, you know, yeah. to get your email, you would have to go through dial-up. So I think now is a great time to talk. Uh, take a, our first break. Um, when we come back, I would love to talk about how you actually got the money because you mm-hmm. said one of the yeah. things that was worried that worried you is you, you were undercapitalized. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about your advice on how to get that money to get open. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time. But the ways to find out what's actually happening with the guests are terrible. Long surveys are annoying. Nobody likes to take them. Table touches aren't scalable. And every negative review costs you 30 new customers. Ouch. That's where Ovation steps in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave positive reviews, unhappy guests to share what happened, and it gives you specific ideas to improve. Using a simple two-question survey, guests either click a text message they get after placing an order or scan a QR code to easily answer, how was your experience? Happy guests leave five-star reviews and can be invited back with automated text marketing. And unhappy guests share privately what went wrong so you can resolve your concerns in real time. Then the magic happens. Ovation takes all the public reviews and all the Ovation private feedback and analyzes them in a single simple view so you can know exactly what to fix and where. It's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's ovationup.com slash unstoppable. So we're back. And you mentioned early on uh, one of the things that steered you away from the industry or discouraged you from continuing down this path of hospitality was that you were undercapitalized. Uh, and honestly, I think it's smart because a lot of people get so in trouble because they are undercapitalized, but they go for it anyway. And then they run out of money and they have to mm-hmm. close. Right. Well, actually, it wasn't that I was undercapitalized. I had no capital. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, And my parents, friends and family, that didn't exist at the time. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I think one of the critical things that I did learn over the course of going to business school was um, writing a business plan, um, which I had done numerous times at this point for this imaginary restaurant. And I knew that I was going to need a certain amount of capital and... um, you know, I did piece it together. I mean, it doesn't look like when you look at this room, it doesn't feel like I pieced it together because pretty much the way it looks now is pretty much the way it looked wow. then. Um, but um, I figured out that I needed around $300,000 to open. And that in today's money probably is like, you know, 2 million or something right. crazy like that. But 
Um, but well, Roberto, d- you know, Roberto was very um, uh, adamant that we weren't going to have a lot of partners because that complicates things. And he thought we should just borrow money. And the reason why he thought we should borrow money First of all, I had no assets. So, I mean, like, there was nothing to collateralize. Yeah. But um, the reason why he thought we should borrow money is because if you have a pie and you're borrowing money, that you, you're never diluting yourself. And he didn't think that we should dilute ourselves. So, that's why we didn't ever really go for investors. So, we put in each 40000 and Anne-Marie put in 10000 So, and we had... So alone for the rest. 000? That's 90,000, right? Between the three of you, but you still needed 210,000. Right. So, um, and maybe, maybe it was, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but that's pretty much how we put it together. And then the rest of it, I borrowed from the SBA and from the Philadelphia, um, commercial development corporation, which is designed to try to create jobs for, um, you know, Philadelphians. So they bought, they loan money on a low interest rate. Um, so we were able to secure a $150,000 SBA loan so without any collateral, which was pretty incredible. Um, no, 240,000. We're up to 240,000 and then we get a $110,000 loan from the city. Got it. Wow. So I'm curious. Um, usually when people build out their pro forma, uh, they get that number for you that was three hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and they say you know add fifty percent. Did you have was it closer to four hundred and fifty thousand? I'm curious. Were, were you were your projections accurate, or did you need more? Uh, well, my projections were accurate because we didn't get any more, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know it was. Uh, I mean this 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 project. If it hadn't been for my interior designer who really um, believed in us, I gave her my business plan and. She said, you know what? I want one too. <laughs> Would you help me create a business plan? So I, I basically worked for her putting this business plan together and we traded. Nice. And so we were, you know, we were scrappy. Yeah. Um, and that's how we were able to do it Win-win on such situations. a, you know, a uh, um, shoestring. Yeah. Um, what were your biggest challenges, if anything, in those early years trying to get open that you had to learn and overcome? Uh, well, Having your door shut on, you know, the, uh, the, the application process for getting a loan was not easy. And, you know, I would say that I was working in healthcare, um, in 95 and 96 while I was trying to secure this money. After I knew that I was going to be leaving healthcare to definitively open this restaurant, I changed to consulting so that I would have more flexible time. And then, the challenge really was that I never managed a process like this before. I mean, this is a construction project. And I mean, I know PowerPoint, but that's about all I know at this point, um, which is a little bit of an exaggeration because I was helping, I was helping this insurance company open and, you know, they would throw these projects at me that I had no clue what to do. And I just learned on my own. So I thought, you know, I had enough self-confidence that I thought I could figure it out. But sometimes there are roadblocks that are really difficult. I mean, what are some of the roadblocks that you could have prevented if you had had a little bit more experience or knowledge? And how can you help other people from making those or hitting those same roadblocks? You know, honestly, I can't remember, but it was probably better that I didn't know because I just kept following my (laughs) mantra, which is to just keep going. Sometimes knowing can scare you away. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. There is some truth in ignorance is bliss. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So um, take us through those early that first year your goal was to make it one year um 
how did well, it go? How, how did it go? Uh, well, it, we opened, of course, you know, everything requires a little bit of luck. And we opened at the right place at the right time. It was October 1997. And there had not been a major restaurant opening in a long time. So it was kind of highly anticipated. And we opened. And I would say, in December of 1997, USA Today somehow got us on their radar. And then we were in Philly Mag, and then the ball started rolling. Within three weeks of opening, um, the Philadelphia Welcome Mat was a l- little weekly newspaper, and it wrote a review of us. Um, so we, we did get a lot of support at the very beginning, and it just car- started steamrolling. I mean, at the very beginning... <laughs> I would say to Roberto, call up all your friends and tell them to come in because we don't have any customers tonight. Uh, you know, there were some difficult moments, but by January of 1998, the weekends were all booked. And so it's um, only three months, right? October, November, December. And, yeah. But wow. Yeah. So what do you think you, if you could go back and just reflect, like, what are the key things you think you did that set you up for success? Well, again, having that network and being able to outreach to people network. and to constantly be in touch with them, making sure that they knew about the restaurant, um, you know, and I never burned any bridges from graduate school to healthcare to even that first advertising agency that I worked at, I'm still in touch with the owner of the restaurant. So never burning any bridges, always being, you know, trying to help other people as well as, you know, I mean, it's a two-way street. No one's going to help you if you're unwilling to help anybody else. So how do you how do you help other people when, like you say, you don't have two pennies to rub together? You didn't have any capital to invest. Like how how were you what what were you leveraging to help other people? Um, well, I think it's not necessarily that literal. I mean, you know, supporting people when mm-hmm. when <laughs> I mean it can be as small as um, you watering know, when, the plants when they're out of town. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, but uh, doing a good job for them, yeah. um, being earnest about um, about doing a good job. I mean, all those things that, um, and I had multiple jobs, which is probably unusual for somebody in that time period. Um, I had multiple jobs, and so you know, I never left anybody, you know, hanging. Yeah, was Roberto in the restaurant industry, or was he just a connoisseur of? Yeah, things. he's a hedge hedge fund manager. Got it, got it. Yeah. Uh, so he wasn't on the floor every day, was he? Was he no. like a psalm or anything? No. no. Um, you mentioned Anne Marie. Uh, how did you two kind of like? What were your lanes? Like, how did you complement each other? Well, Anne Marie was a chef, got so it. she basically was in the kitchen, and I was like the GM basically. And so you know, um, uh, she did an incredible job. I mean, she she. We were so pleasantly surprised at the quality of her food. Not that she didn't do a great tasting, but we didn't really know what to expect because we couldn't really go to her restaurant and taste the food or anything like that. So we had her over at Roberto's house and she made some food and it was good. Um, but when she started doing tastings for us for in preparation for the menu, we were like, wow, yeah. this is so fresh off the pan. It just... It's going to be a hit. I like people can't not love her cooking. And um, she did an incredible job and um, she built an incredible team. And, um, you know, we had a lot of people who uh, worked with us for a long period of time um, during those early years. So fast forward 25 years later, mm-hmm. right, to, to current time. 
your you know, your namesake, your original restaurant, Fork. You have High Street on Market. You have a kitchen, a bar. Are those two separate or together? Yeah, they're separate. Um, so um, first, we expanded next door to a, a space that we called Fork Etc. Okay. And Fork Etc. was a prepared foods cafe that served breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, it had a private room behind it for Fork, and it was it was a um, it was a cute little space. That's where we first started doing our own baking. So we had our own bakery there where we sold our bread, baked goods, breakfast, um, retail products, um, grab and go. Uh, um, what, what year was this? I'm this curious. was two thousand four. Okay. Now, when you ask me what kind of challenges I faced. So this was kind of my first real, well, first of all, when Anne-Marie left, that was my first challenge. When did she leave? 2000. Okay. I was kind of curious if she was still in the picture or not, because I didn't, I wasn't aware of that name. Yeah. No, she was with us for three years. Sorry. And, you know, I think what happened was that we started growing apart as to what we wanted. Mm. And... Um, now we're getting to the good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to grow and she wanted to have like an intimate, um, you know, restaurant. And yeah. that was kind of like a one-off type thing. And, you know, I already felt that need to find some place for people to start to grow at that point. Um, and so um, we decided to part ways. Okay. And she ended up owning her own prepared food store. And um, that was open for almost 20 years. So right now, as of today, you have four locations, but you've opened other projects and closed them since. So Fork Etc. opened in 2004, and then it transferred. We rebranded it as High Street. Got it. Got it. Okay. So going back, um, 2000, so from, from 98 or end of 97 to 2000, um, any lessons that we're, we're skipping over before talking about how you and Anne decided to part ways? Well... You know, I was, of course, devastated because, you know, it feels like a failure when your relationship isn't working. Um, And then trying to find somebody else to take over and fill those shoes and that change, you know, any kind of change in leadership, I I think I underestimated the importance of that. And remember, I'm only now I'm 35 years old during this time and, um, you know, probably still never managed anything (laughs) really other than, than the restaurant. Um, and you know, I didn't really have that, um, that, that acumen, acumen, um, to really know how to navigate, how to, how to respond to people. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, what do you mean by how to respond to people who your team the team, yeah, and support them along the way. And so, you know, we brought in somebody who didn't really work the first year. And then um, after they left, uh, another person came in and they ended up staying. Tian ended up being chef there for seven years. Who's this Tia? Tian? Tian um, was a very interesting character. So that <laughs> super creative um, just showed up on my doorstep and still don't know who he really is. Um, but, um, he did an incredible job of cooking and he did elevate the restaurant to a certain extent. He had a very traditional French, um, background. According to his story, he worked at Le Fouquet or Le Fouquet in Paris and, um, also was Vietnamese. And really, actually, I grew so much as a diner being under Tien's, um, tutelage because I ate at so many different types of restaurants, probably more than I would have if he hadn't been around. Um, Vietnamese food, Korean food, um, 
French food, everything. Um, and um, that included out at other restaurants as well as food that he would prepare for us. Uh, but he, unfortunately, he also um, had a lot of personal issues. Mm. And and also he was older and, you know, at some point he was ready to retire. And so um, uh, that's when Terrence Fury entered. Terrence was um, formerly chef at Stripe Bass, which was a restaurant in Philadelphia, and he had. Um, it's, it's bass season right now. <laughs> he opened uh, Maya with his brother, and they both came from a very pedigreed background. Um, Terrence worked for both um, Guy Lacoze at Le Bernardin and Eric Repair, and his brother was at Le Cirque. And they both worked under Neil Stein, who was a very well-known restaurateur in the 90s in Philadelphia. And um, and so he just left his um, re- his own restaurant and was looking for a new platform. And when did Terrence join? What year was that? 2008. Okay. Got it. So I want to kind of unpackage a couple of things first because I think there's some lessons in um, your, your, your original partnership with Anne-Marie. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing what you know now about business and going, getting into partnerships, what are some of the things you could have done that you didn't do early on to prevent the, the I guess, the, the diverge in vision? Well, I mean, obviously having a vision. <laughs> I think we I were aligned. <laughs> we were aligned in having um, this idea of a seasonal restaurant, and we were aligned in how we wanted our employees and team members to be treated. You know, Fork was a front runner in benefits and four hundred one k and all these other things because that was part of what our vision for our restaurant was, and we had a handbook that outlined what our mission statement and vision yes. statement was. But, so you're doing a lot of them things right. As a having an MBA, you, you knew what to do. Yeah, I don't even know if that really was <laughs> the case. But um, but I think that the main thing that we never really discussed was what was the future going to look like. Your goal was to make it a year, so, right? So you never really look beyond that. What, what's the five year plan? What's the twenty year plan? Well, first of all, we never expected Fork to be a rocket ship. You right. know what I mean? Like we were doing. This is a 65-seat restaurant, and um, the 65 seats could be as many as 350 covers. Um, And remember, this is the 90s, and so Old City was not nearly as populated as it is now with other restaurants. So if you came here, you could be eating at 1130 at night. Wow. Because there was no place else to go, you know. Um, And um, we served until 1130 at night. So it was a long, it was a long service. Uh, We serve lunch and dinner and Sunday brunch. So it was a lot. And especially on like Mother's Day, which always somehow coincides with graduation. I don't know who plans graduation, but (laughs) for whatever reason, there are years when they coincide and, you know, the number of large parties, the number of turns, and you're trying to get that in. Um, you know, and, and I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I, I'm trying to like build business. Um, and, um, you know, I think she really was not into that kind of volume. Got it. Um, so was it a good separation? Well, she ended up, um, tripling her original investment. So I think that that was good. And she met her future, her husband of, uh, over 25 years now, um, at Fork yeah. and she opened her own business. So I would say it was positive. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, allowed her to pursue her dream the way she wanted it to be. Yeah. So I think that's a success. Uh, and with Tien, I think it's, I mean, we, we have his name. So I'm not trying to like drag anybody's name through the mud. That's not the goal of what we're trying to do yeah. here. But you said he has, he has some difficult with, uh, difficulties with personality. Mm-hmm. And- he had a difficult personality. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, it's, it's, you have to buy my book. <laughs> I do, I know. <laughs> because it kind of outlines the story of of um, Tien. And, you know, he contributed so much. I mean, really, Fork, etc. was his vision. He had this chef's bistro dinner where, you know, every Wednesday night, he would have this tasting menu, basically, for lack of a better word, from in the, you know, 2004, 2005 was really not, you know, it was a predecessor to what people are doing now but you know uh it was um, a surprise you wouldn't know what you were going to be eating it was um this idea he had from eating in um paris after work where he would just go to this restaurant and the chef would cook for the cook for you and um uh you know it was it was really a um, it was really a great place but it was one of the most challenging construction projects because it was even bigger than fork the budget was even bigger than Fork, and it had to be a union job because I'm on Market Street. Okay. And so the price tag was a third higher than probably what it would cost to open Fork. Just to cover the labor. Yeah. And also, once you open your second restaurant, your expectation of yourself is higher. You can't just shoestring it together. You know what I mean? To a certain extent, people have this vision of what this restaurant was like. And if I opened next door to it, it's not going to be... It's not going to be like, you know, walking into somebody's first restaurant. Right. So ultimately, when did uh, Fork Etc. have to pivot and rebrand to High Street? Actually, didn't have to pivot. Okay. Um, we did, you know, so when Terrence took over, he continued these um, these special dinners. In fact, we went on this fishing trip and we had like numerous guest chefs. We also um, really got our private room started building and business and we used fork etc a lot for um private events but we could never get it to be off the ground as a dinner time place maybe that's because it was designed almost like a um a retail shop but it just never got dinner business and so when i when terrence moved on i thought to myself um you know, maybe this is an opportunity to just look at everything differently. And so that's when I met Eli Culp, who is a friend of yours. Um, I met Eli in New York when he was CDC at Teresi. And what year is this now? This is me. now 2012. Got it. So Terrence had a good run with you guys. Terrence was great. 2008, 2012. Terrence was great. Yeah. He really elevated the restaurant. We had a lot of fun. Small fact, um, Terrence's father was my elementary school homeroom teacher. Oh, crazy. So I, w- I was also caught off guard. I really didn't expect Terrence to really want to leave, but he also wanted to put his own mark on his own place. And Fork, unfortunately, is so much me, you know, um, because I've been here for so long. But I'm, I, you know, I, I definitely wanted it to evolve and, and be different. Uh, and so when um, I met Eli, Eli was just like, well, we're going to, this is going to be Fork 2.0, you know, I, and um, and one of the things that I noticed was that when people walked by, they were always like, that's a really nice restaurant. And I was just like, you know what, when we redo Fork, 
I'm going to blow it out of the water and make it a really nice restaurant. And I think that might have appealed to Eli at that time because he knew that Fork had a great reputation, that it would be supported. And he coming from New York to Philadelphia, that that would help support him in his career as well. Yeah. So I'm a little confused because we said when when we redo Fork, however, you said that Fork hasn't really changed. Since well, the, 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 the design of it hasn't really changed. Okay. But we did remodel. I mean, you do have to refresh from time to time. Okay. And so, like, how did we refresh? One thing was we got rid of all the tablecloths. We made it a little bit more contemporary. Yeah. Those murals that are um, up on the wall, um, those were done by that server I told you about at the very beginning of our interview, T- Tony DeMellis. Okay. Um, and what it was really representing was this progression toward a contemporary American restaurant. So going from New American Bistro, which was what we were calling ourselves, to contemporary American cuisine, which is what Eli was more about, um, was really what this transition was. So we did remodel at that time, um, you know, things were changing and that style of cuisine was, um, was, that was probably a pivotal point for contemporary cuisine in Philadelphia, contemporary American cuisine in Philadelphia. And um, so when Eli came, um, you know, he was one of several chefs from New York city who relocated to Philadelphia. Philadelphia is great because people are really into food, but um, you know, the cost of living is much more affordable and um, it's much easier to get into a restaurant than it is in New York. A little more discretionary income around here for food and experience. Yes. But um, people are very um, particular about how they spend their money. So one thing I've, I've noticed about you, and this is probably, I would say the majority of my listeners are probably more towards the entrepreneurial side, the, Mm -hmm. the, the operations, the business, the the visionary, the dreamers, and I'm sure there's a few chefs listening too. Um, but one thing I picked up about you is it seems like you're really good at attracting talent. Uh, so what advice do you have for finding chefs and attracting chefs? Well, I think this starts from my complete inexperience in the industry and knowing that um, if I don't sur- surround myself by the talent that I need, that I'm not going to succeed. And I'm, I'm very much about not failing and succeeding. Um, I'm unstoppable, so to speak. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I really think about, you know, who is it that can bring that, that spark and that talent to life? And when I sat down at Teresi and I had the 20 course tasting menu, I was just like, oh my God, I have to have this, I have to recruit this person. You know what I mean? <laughs> Or when I met Terrence, I just knew that um, that he was going to be able to take what we had previously been doing and really take it to the next level. Yeah. And I'm always about evolving. And, and unfortunately, that's just part of life is evolving. So, you know? so what's the difference between recruiting somebody and stealing somebody? Oh, um, well, <laughs> I mean stealing somebody i mean i guess you could perceive that any transition is a steal you know what i mean i don't think there is a thing as stealing somebody i mean because to steal somebody that's making the assumption that somebody belongs unwilling yeah Yeah. right yeah so it's like you you don't people don't get stolen from you they you lose people right true so i think it's important to recognize that that people have the choice if they're not getting what they are looking to get with you maybe you're not offering them the opportunity like you said and you hit the nail on the head people want to grow so if they're not going to grow, if they're not growing with you, they're, they're going to grow, grow somewhere somebody else. else. Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think your mentality of 
the only reason why we open more restaurants is to op- to provide more opportunity mm-hmm. is the only reason why you should open another restaurant because if you open that restaurant and you don't have the people to move into it mm-hmm. then is that restaurant going to be successful Right, exactly. It's very difficult. And so when Eli came, and that's when High Street Hospitality Group was really formed, we we revamped Fork. We transformed Fork, etc. into High Street on Market um, out of the love of pasta and bread. (laughs) Um, And then we also took over A Kitchen and Bar, which um, has an incredible beverage program, but also was um, a highly respected small plates restaurant. Um, so we took that over in 2014, immediately after we opened High Street. Um, so that was that was amazing growth right there. And then we ended up opening High Street on Hudson in New York, and then High Street Provisions in West Philadelphia. And we just recently transformed that into High Street Hoagies. So you know, it's it's constant like, deci- you know, deciding whether you have the people or not to be able to do these projects. Um, accepting that things are going to change every time that you add something on and be able to adapt to those changes and keep your integrity and your vision and mission going. Um, you know, during the pandemic, I, I have really um, been able to connect with our management team because we had so much alone time, you know, during the pandemic that, um, that, I feel so supported right now. I feel like this is one of the best teams that we've ever had. And uh, they are... Which is a statement in today's world where it's so hard to find people. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt. No. uh, You know, everybody is committed to the vision and the mission. And, um, you know, everybody is excited about the opportunities that may lie ahead. Yeah. Um, And... Uh, Eli's episode, if you guys are interested in that, episode 957. It was a great episode. I highly recommend you go check that one out. Um, So, like, reflecting back from, like, 2012, it sounds like was when you really started to, like, expand and grow aggressively. Is that safe to say? Was that a tipping point for you? 2013, 2013. probably, yeah. So, I'm sure you were faced with a whole new set of challenges and new hurdles to get over because you had never managed that many separate restaurants, right? Right. So so what were those challenges? Take us back to the first initial real challenge that you were faced with and what, where was the pain? What was the challenge? Well, um, you know, fork, et cetera, because it's next door and an extension of fork was a little bit easier because we, we still had only one, business, so to speak. And you could be there quickly if you had to. And I could be there quickly. Which is a huge lesson. And I think we really wanted a kitchen because that gave us the opportunity to show that we could manage multiple things. But a kitchen is also part of a hotel. And so the whole culture of now collaborating with another entity um, definitely was a challenge. Um, You know, not only just bringing our concept and our ideas to the table, but also fitting into their corporate structure, their, um, you know, systems and the way they do things are slightly different than the way we necessarily do them. What's hard about that? <clears throat> well, one is that um, I don't think we were really ever oriented to what their systems really were. We just started operating. Yeah. And, you know, so it was like, you know, hand slaps, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, but... Um, you know, their accounting system, their budgeting system, you know, you can't just go decide that you want a new ice machine because, you know, 
it's there. Yeah. Um, learning their accounting system. Um, I mean, we've been there 10 years and I'm just starting to feel comfortable with all that. But even now, um, you know, they are also growing. So the people are also changing. And so I'm continuously building new relationships with people there. What was the change? What was the, the, the tipping point to make you feel more comfortable? Uh, I think that um, uh, during the pandemic, um, uh, we streamlined a lot of things and um, we had, uh, we always have had talented front of house and back of house management there. But um, by the time the pandemic rolled around, um, the chef there, Eli Collins, had been there for almost three years and he's almost like the operator there. You know what I mean? And, um, and then a very trusted general manager there. I mean, like I said, we've had very talented people in the past. Um, the woman who was the general manager right before the pandemic had a baby. And so we were forced to find a new GM and, uh, happened to be somebody who started with us as a bus person and grew into being GM after college and still wanting to be passionate about this industry. And, so he has um, been operating that business with Eli. So like just longevity and position, growing relationships, evolving systems over time to coexist in yeah. that space. Yeah. So yeah. just that constant gentle pressure. Right. Exactly. And, um, and so um, I didn't have to worry about the day-to-day operations so much. So I could really focus on like the systems that were in place. And I think that has helped yeah. make it feel more comfortable. What were some of the other ways you had to evolve? And anytime we have to evolve and change, it's, it's difficult. So reflecting back at these, these points of resistance or points of friction in your career where you had to like get out of your comfort zone, anything come to mind? Uh, well, New York was certainly a major, um, shift just because we, I don't live there. And so, um, you know, just understanding the New York market and understanding the um, culture of um, the workplaces there. Uh, that was definitely one of the most challenging things that I've had to adjust to. What was the appeal of New York City? Uh, well, this was something that I think, um, you know, Eli really wanted to um, have a restaurant in New York. And I was just like, sure, I'm all for growing. And New York sounds great. And you know, the market and was he upfront about that from the beginning? Or was it something that bubbled I think, up later? No, I think um, growing was definitely something that we discussed in the past. And, um, you know, we didn't know exactly what it was going to grow to, but we knew that we both wanted to grow and we both wanted to have a few concepts under our brand. So you know, I think we were very aligned in that. Um, you know, I, as much as he loved the idea of being in New York City, because it's a market that, you know, kind exposure. of yeah. gives you amazing exposure. And the way we kind of envisioned it was that Eli would be there most of the time and I would be supporting and that um, and that I would be here most of the time and he would be supporting. So that was kind of the arrangement that um, that we were thinking. Um, and then... Um, you know, New York just kind of was one of these things that just from the very beginning was a challenge. I mean, um, not in the sense of raising money because we were able to raise the money almost immediately and we were able to get the funding at this point. Right. And it was highly anticipated and we had a great team at the time and we were able to recruit great managers, you know, 
in retrospect, um, you know, some of the things we were a very ambitious group and what we wanted to cram into this 2000 square foot little restaurant maybe was too ambitious and, and we didn't, we underestimated how hard it would be to not be there and to have this kind of ambition. And then obviously Eli's accident uh, had a huge impact on that. And then, um, you know, uh, I think just not having a presence there. I mean, yeah. one of the things that, um, you know, if I, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but uh, my mother had a massive stroke in 2010. Okay. And um, that was that was probably the most challenging thing I've ever had mm-hmm. to face in my life because um, I, I, I really wasn't envisioning my mother at such a young age and being so healthy, mm. being completely dependent on other people to live. And so since 2010, um, uh, you know, I had to readjust my personal life a little bit because um, my mom lives with me and my brother. I live now with my brother and um, we take care of my mom. Of course, we have help. But um, but uh, that was not something that was in my business plan, yeah. so to speak. I mean, I can only imagine how this made you feel like how like where were you emotionally? How were you feeling during this time? Uh, well, first of all, it was um, my mother was really sick. I can, I can only imagine it must have been devastating. I mean, whether she was going to live or not, and um, you know, know, every every make me cry every day, <laughs> like you know, whether or not she was something was going to go wrong. Uh, it was really awful, and um, uh, you know, thankfully she's um, she's she's incredibly feisty and. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I love her so much. She really inspires me and her strength is unbelievable. But um, but that really changed my perspective and how I had to manage things because I couldn't be here. I didn't want to be here. I, I couldn't be here. Yeah. And so um, at that point, just managing this one location, um, I had to kind of change my perspective on things and make sure that there were people here to, like, you know, support. And um, so from... 2011 to 2012 i mean those were the beginning of like trying to figure it all out mm. i mean how how did you figure it was there a tipping point where it, it started to come to frame and, and figure it itself out or well bringing eli in was certainly yeah. part of that because um it, um eli is extremely capable and um an incredible leader and <clears throat> and uh you know had a vision yeah. and so um you know, we had a we had a, 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 a you know a great group of people at that time. Yeah, I think this is one of the like the the biggest reasons why. I mean, Roberto made a good point. Partnerships complicate things, mm-hmm. but I do think that the would, I mean, would you agree or disagree? I'm curious in your perspective. Since you've been in the industry as an owner and since 1997, would you say the the market's more competitive now? Absolutely. Would you say you have to be more on your game now versus 25 years ago to, to compete? Absolutely, yeah. Would, would you say it would be really <laughs> hard to do by yourself? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think the days of, of solopreneur entre- restaurant tours mm-hmm. is kind of over. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can be at the top and do it by yourself anymore. I'm sure there's people that can do it, but the people that can do it are becoming fewer and fewer because it's mm-hmm. getting so much more difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the power of partnerships and, and, and knowing your lane, staying in your lane, and honestly, 
shit happens. Mm-hmm. People get sick. Mm-hmm. Your priorities change. Right. And you need people to lean on yeah. during those times. Right, exactly. And having people like Eli in your corner, like that is so invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Continue that train. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I mean, uh, the the beauty of all our all our relationships with um, with uh, um, not only um, partners but also with um, our management team. You know, we have an incredible group, as I mentioned previously. Um, you know, the way I look at it is that those frontline worker, the frontline of GMs and chefs, they are the ones who are front facing and doing the day to day operational work. They have to be supported by another group of people who, um, you know, they represent kind of like a circle, a ring, so to speak, and that we're all there. The people on the outer ring are all there to support the inner team. And, um, you know, uh, you know, we finally kind of envisioned our management structure in this way and people are really on board with this system. So, so where, where'd you get this inspiration of, of envisioning the, um, I guess a hierarchy or in this example of the circle where it's centri- centrific circles? Well, I, I'm one of those people who, you know, I never fit into a hierarchy. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and, and again, especially because of my work in nonprofit, I feel like people need to work in groups um, to be effective. I mean, you don't necessarily, you know, make your kitchen work just by being the head of it. You need other people to support you in the HR component because more than ever, it's so important for your line cooks to have career, you know, career opportunities and career counseling and to feel like there is a path for them. Yes, I was going to say a, a path for growth, like like shown, like a light shown on that path right. from day one. Right. So you can say to yourself, oh, I'm starting here and in five years or less, I can be there. Right. And seeing those and having that path like just lit up for you is right. so important. But if you're operating every day, finding the time and the, th- and the space to be able to do that in a competitive world where your food has to be great and your leadership has to be great and culture all, yeah. culture all that so um uh you know that's why um even though so many chefs have amazing social media accounts we have a social media person who can support um you know we have these other yeah. people to help you know and I, I think what happens if you're getting into the industry right now it's so hard to not compare yourself to to the Elenians of the world you know who built this team around them you know what i'm saying and I think it's important to realize that that doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It takes years of persistence and, and starting where you can and building slowly. But I think the, the good news is today you can, if you take a few steps back, like, like you said, like you, you wanted to start, like this was your dream mm-hmm. uh, and you pulled it off and it's a testament to your abilities. But I, I think it's important for people to realize that like you don't necessarily have to start there. You right. know, mm-hmm. and you can start where you can and it's hard to not compare yourself to other people, but know that, they didn't get there overnight either. Right. You know, you know, I mean, comparing yourself to other people is really hard. I mean, yeah. we all do it. Right. But, um, I think that the more you, um, compare yourself, you're always feeling I'm never good enough. Yeah. And that's a really hard feeling to overcome and why, you know, feeling unstoppable, <laughs> you know, I mean, for, for me, I'm just like, I'm just pushing forward the best that I can and don't look at everybody else. Focus on what you're doing and what you yeah. want. Yeah. There's a reason why I don't listen to any other restaurant podcasts because I'm afraid <laughs> of comparing myself to other people. I just want to do my own thing. Uh, so where where is High Street today? 
So during the pandemic, we um, had to shut down our next door operation. Um, we um, had been there for 16 years and we were at the end of our lease. And um, I guess our landlord felt that we were underpaying rent and so readjusted our rent. And I didn't think that it was feasible. So I, I negotiated a shorter period of time. And so during the pandemic, you know, without knowing that there was going to be a second round of PPP or anything like that, I just didn't feel comfortable staying. And so we packed everything up and relocated to um, another location where we only do takeout and delivery. And our bakery is um, situated there and continues to thrive. Um, you know, the pandemic obviously changed everything for everybody, but now we're finally getting back into a position where we're going to reopen the dining component. Got it. So is any element of your business today different because of the, the challenges that, you know, you were faced with the pandemic? Like, what, 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 like are you leaning more on technology? Um, did anything like that happen? Well, everything, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything changed. Um, you know, I mean, it really made, I think, a lot of restaurateurs relook at their business model because um, clearly there was something wrong in the past. I mean, everybody is aware of the very slim margins, but right. maybe not everybody was aware that they were skating on such thin ice and um, decided that after the pandemic, everything had to change. So how did you change? Well, um, number one, we lopped off that part. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, just making making that change of reducing the overhead, which, um, you know, was sad because we put so much into that space, but nothing would have made me happier than to continue. But actually, in retrospect, I think this is going to make us even stronger because um, we now have an idea of how we could grow High Street. Whereas before, we just opened another New York restaurant maybe that's not feasible because we don't have the bread there and we don't have this there, but maybe this now becomes the model for how we can expand multiple locations and manage the real estate cost. So what specific, so what was your model? What is your model now? How's your model changed? Has it changed? I, I mean, it, we are still a full service restaurant. Fork yeah. is still a full service restaurant. So what has changed are the economics of what, um, goes into the business model. So, I mean, we're, you know, of course, during the pandemic, we pivoted to all the different things that everybody was doing. Not all of them stuck. I mean, we have the streetery, um, which is just an expansion of seating. We, um, we were doing frontline worker meals. In retrospect, I wish that I had thought ahead on that and created something out of that. But, yeah. you know, that's, unfortunately, that ship has sailed. Yes. But, um, uh, and then, um, uh, and then, of course, um, uh, you know, all the different takeout models. I mean, we were not doing any takeout pre-pandemic. Now, DoorDash and all those things are part of our, our, of our takeout model. Um, uh, subscription services like Table 22, yeah. you know, all that good stuff. I mean, you know, that's great. But what that's is Table not, 22? That's a subscription service where members join and then they are able to receive something in return like a package every month or a, a tasting menu or a chef's box or something like so what that. are you how are you guys leveraging table 22 uh we have subscriptions to our um uh to a pork sandwich <laughs> <laughs> uh so you get four pork sandwiches for your subscription or um something else like that so do you do you 
prepare the pork sandwich and ship it off or is it just the elements to do it at home? It's the elements to do it at home. And then also, you know, gold belly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some of those things have definitely stuck. I mean, gold belly represents a pretty substantial component, not the largest, but um, our bread program really expanded. Um, So, you know, during the pre-pandemic time, we just had a small retail outlet. Um, Now our bread sales are, you know, surpass what we were doing, you know, at that time. Uh, because people just suddenly needed to have bread. <laughs> I mean, I think everybody started to learn how. Like, there was a huge boom. I mean, myself, I started baking during the pandemic. I always had aspirations. I bought all this stuff before the pandemic. Uh, but everybody, I mean, it was so hard to find flour during the pandemic. And yeah, yeast, right. It was so yeah. hard. Um, but anyway, so. But what I was saying before was yeah. what changed isn't necessarily what we're doing. It's more the economics. So number one, the of course, all the supply change supply chain challenges of being able to source what you were sourcing before and being able to get that. So we were very lucky because we rely so much on our local farmers that didn't really change, but takeout containers and things like that were very hard to keep consistent. And why is that such a big deal? Because when you're making an eight ounce portion of this and suddenly you have a 10 ounce takeout container now it looks small and or or somebody just visually wants to keep filling it right um you know those type of inconsistencies become a challenge so um uh those type of um inflationary items um and difficulty sourcing and then of course um the major thing is labor yeah and and just you know, at any given time in the restaurant history's past, there would always be, you know, this turnover. But you always had a core group of people who really loved the industry and wanted to be in the industry. The carry your culture yes. to be the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of economics, um in specifically to labor, how have you had to evolve to to adapt to the new normal as far as the the, the I mean you already painted the picture of where how hard it is to say with labor. Yeah. Well, I think even more so than ever, understanding your costs is really important. We adopted a new accounting system called Restaurant 365, which allows you to tie in all your purchases and all that. I mean, most sophisticated restaurant people are probably using some format of, of you know, invoice management and inventory management and purchasing management. Um, but you know, a lot of individual restaurateurs don't have that kind of luxury, but there are less expensive platforms that you can use now, um, like Margin Edge we used for a long time. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, really understanding your cost because now the food cost is really important. If your labor cost went from 32 to 38 or 35 to 40 or make up for 40 to 50 yeah. in the case of the bakery, um, wow. <laughs> um, uh, you really need to be able to know how you're going to offset that. And yeah. so that equation that used to be very set for all restaurants, that 30% was food cost, 30 to 35% was labor cost. Now, if labor cost is 40, then food cost has to be something else because everything else in between is not going. Right. So a couple of things with restaurant 365, in my experience with people using, it, I think it's a great tool. Um, there, there are challenges with implementing it. Some people, when they when they they choose to go with Restaurant Three Sixty Five, I think they think that your problems are going to be solved. You're going to buy the software and <laughs> your problems go away. 
what did you have any challenges implementing that oh yeah i mean it's hard it's really hard to implement that's why they give you a whole coaching team yeah because um there are times when i have even thrown up my hands and been like is this worth what we paid for it but is it? um well i think so because it allows for me the one of the reasons why i wanted it was because you can now have a transparent um accounting system so before when we were using we use sage I think to own multiple licenses became like a hundred thousand dollar investment or something crazy like that. And uh, I couldn't afford that. Um, with restaurant 365, I can assign everybody from servers to cooks to managers privileges so that if we want our servers to be able to see how much our sales are, we can do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the direction that we're yeah. moving is toward being able to allow our team members more accessibility. I think it's worth giving the listeners a warning that these are great tools. I want to say restaurant systems pros should be added to that list. Uh, One of our current sponsors, which does a lot of the same stuff, but know that if you invest in these assets, there's going to be a lot of resistance. There's a huge learning curve. You're, you're changing all of your habits. Mm -hmm. You're basically starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot of heavy lifting in the beginning, but guess what? This these tools force you to to go through the steps. Yeah, they they're almost like a built in checklist. Yeah, and if you go through the motions, you you check all the boxes. You're forced to check the boxes, and if you persist, if you keep, I don't know the the opening quote was it keep showing up or uh, keep going, keep going, <laughs> yeah. you keep going with it. Mm-hmm. Those that resistance becomes habit before mm-hmm. you know it, and you probably right. don't even you probably don't even feel it anymore. Well, you now probably, everybody's talking about R three sixty five on our management team. So, I mean, it has has definitely changed the culture. We have somebody who's specifically designated toward, you know, trying to get everybody on board with it and supporting them in it because. You know, the the area where it's the most challenging is the kitchen, of course. I mean, on top of everything else, now you have to enter invoices into R365, you know, um, capturing the data, making sure that you're not missing anything, making sure it's properly coded. I mean, like this coding thing is like crazy. I mean, if I had to tell anybody how to do it, I would say one person is the only person who can enter everything at the beginning because if the more people who have their hands in it, the more crazy it gets. Yeah, it problems, yeah. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm losing track of time. Uh, we're, can you believe it's been over an hour and a half? No. It goes by so fast. Wow. And you've given <laughs> us gold. I've really enjoyed this. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you were hoping would come out of today's conversation? Specific knowledge, uh, specific skill sets, specific experiences that can serve the next generation of professionals? Well, all I can say is that this is an incredible industry and that um, that people who love it, love it because it is one of the most gratifying things that you can possibly be doing is serving people. And I think that um, more people should try it because it might make them more positive if you can believe it. Right. Right. Uh, So the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. What don't you love about the industry that if you could change about the industry, you would. Well, I personally think that the wage structure has to be reinvented, and that means that tipping has to go away. But the only way that I think tipping can go away is if the government mandates that tipping go away. And it's like smoking. Yeah, why is that the only way? Well, remember when, um, well, maybe you don't remember, but this restaurant used to allow smoking. And nobody was willing to say, I'm not allowing smokers in the restaurant because of, of pushback. you know pushback yeah. and um, the only way that 
the city was able to create a non-smoking city, or, you know, this policy was by putting the law in. Yeah. And I think that that has to happen with tipping because consumers are so used to it. Um, team members are so used to it. Um, but why is this industry like any other industry? It is a business just like yeah. every other business. Yeah. And I think that um, having a more stable um, wage structure would allow people to view it as a professional profession. Um, it is a profession and it is a profession that deserves to have a um, pay structure. I mean, whether you include commissions or whatever, that's all up to the individual operator. But um, but I don't think that relying on tips is... Um, it's broken. It makes people feel like it's an insecure industry. Yeah, I feel that. So if the solution is government involvement in mandating and in, in making uh, a no-tipping model uh, the norm, how do we move in that direction? How, does, how do we make that happen? Well, first, I think uh, consistency between um, states, um, service charges, uh, I think, are a way to test the market. That's what we've been doing is we added a service charge of 20% to um, all our checks at Fork. And on the days when we have the largest gap between the front of the house and back of the house, which is typically a holiday, we have um, holiday pay, and then we, we chip in the holiday pay, obviously. Um, and we have a tip out for the back of the house, because a lot of times those days are days when the kitchen has actually gone above and beyond to create a special experience. And so they deserve to have some additional compensation. For sure. And so we're just testing yeah. to see how the tip pool model can be adapted. I think part of it too is just talking to each other. You yeah. know, and like I think I like to think that this podcast is doing a service, getting people like yourself with influence to share your perspective, your beliefs. Somebody who's dedicated, you know, at least thirty years of their lives when you could take all the, the stuff that you were doing in your earlier mm -hmm. career in the restaurant industry. I mean you have experience, you have perspective, your 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 opinions matter, you know? And and giving you a platform to stand on and to influence the next generation. I think if we go together we can go a lot further. We can make things happen a lot faster. I love that. Yeah. Um thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. We're gonna take one more quick break to thank our sponsor. We'll be right back to bust out a speed round. Recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, 
There is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this, you're looking at a more engaged worker too because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one, and huddle like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to One Huddle's game shop, which includes 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. We are back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Speed round. That's not a speed round question. I think it's um, <laughs> <laughs> stubbornness. <laughs> what is your biggest weakness? Um, probably, uh, I think I could be a better listener. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Growing my team that I look for in growing my team is um, everybody being on the same page. Got it. And I think I need to backpedal a little bit because you said that uh, something you're, you could be better at your weakness is being a better listener. Yeah. I just interviewed the author of What Is It Costing You Not to Listen? Oh, wow. Just this week. Uh, she's um, Christine Miles is her name. Uh, amazing woman. Amazing book. I highly recommend it. Mm. What is one of your biggest challenges today? Biggest challenges today? Um just trying to figure out the new business model. Mm. And how are you overcoming that challenge? With great frustration. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep showing up or whatever it is. The, right. The, the, keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Right. Uh, share one code of conduct or core value you teach your team. 
Well, I think it's really important to make people belong. And so, you know, we are really trying to push our onboarding um, process and making sure that we have support for all our new team members, whether that be a buddy system or, um, you know, just saying hi to people and asking how they are. Mm, that's huge. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Uh, well, I loved, um, Eli gave me this book, The Culture Code, which, yes. um, I loved. Um, I think, uh, Will Gadara's new book, Empowering Hospital, and, um, Unreasonable, Unreasonable Hospitality, yep. Hospitality is awesome. I really enjoyed that. Um, and the book that I'm looking most forward to reading is, um, Belonging from Michelle Miller. Ooh. Uh, going back to The Culture Code, what was the biggest lesson from that book? Oh my God, you're asking, you know, my brain is so fried. <laughs> um, I love the story of um, the um, Marines, uh, and I'm trying to think if I can make it concise or not, but basically um, uh, they were talking about the practice the practice runs and having a recap after every single practice of when they were talking about the um, the uh, um, I don't know what you call it the attack on Osama bin Laden whatever whatever they call that mission is yes. the mission and um, how um, uh, they they just kept having a recap of every single meeting and trying to get better every single time 100% better yeah yeah it's huge um, what do you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough take a rest (laughs) for sure better balance i get that uh we kind of talked a little about technology already but i'll I'll throw the question at you anyway what is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within your restaurants that's had a huge impact on communication efficiency profitability anything along those lines teams what's teams teams is the microsoft package which is like slack and we use it to store all our documents share all the information collaborate have um, you know uh, documentation of conversations? It's really an incredible collaborative tool. Yeah, the 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 tools, the cloud tools that exist today are game changers yeah. for sure. And this is the last question. We've made it to the end, Ellen. You've been amazing. Uh, here it comes. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. This is a deep question, by the way. I get a lot of eye rolls with this one. You'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what will those three pieces of wisdom be? Here comes the eye roll. <laughs> three pieces of wisdom. Um, uh, well, um, you got to believe you're unstoppable because if you don't have a vision of yourself, um, you can't blame anybody else. Yep. You know, so personal accountability. One. Um, giving back to and um, uh, and the importance of family and friends three Ellen this has been a lot of fun Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really trying to take a journalistic approach to Restaurant Unstoppable. Um, and the way we do that is by asking leaders like yourself, who do you respect and admire in this industry? People that you think need to be made an example of. Who comes to mind? Call them out. Call them out. Um, uh, let's see. Well, um, I really admire Mark Vetri for all the work that he's been doing with the Vetri Community Fund. You know, I think that uh, creating this community organization to support, um, uh, you know, the food insecure, to 
provide educational opportunities is really pretty incredible. So I'm just going to give a shout out to Mark and he's also celebrating his 25th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations, Mark. I'd love to get him on the show. He's been on my list for some time. And um, if we were inspired by your story, if we are thinking maybe, maybe I want to come work for Alan, what's the best way to connect? Best way to connect is um, careers at highstreethospitality.com. Beautiful. Uh, this is episode 991. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 991 for a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to tools or services recommended on the show. Uh, and I just can't say thank you uh, for for being an inspiration for, for keep pushing, for never stop pushing, uh, and just for taking the time of your very busy schedule to, to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. There is no questioning, Ellen. You are unstoppable. Thank you, Eric. Thank I you. hope so. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Ellen Yin, for coming on the show. You're the reason why we came to Philadelphia. Uh, Eli Culp said amazing things about you as a business partner. And, uh, you know, you were enough reason to plan a trip. And we surrounded you with amazing interviews. And this was such a great trip. I just want to say thank you to Philadelphia for being so hospitable and welcoming us in. And uh, for everybody who was a guest on this road trip, being so generous with your wisdom and your and your knowledge and uh, your perspectives. This was just awesome stuff. And if you are enjoying this podcast and you want to support our mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, we do need your help. We're trying to inject integrity into this thing. I'm trying to take a journalistic approach. I don't think it, it makes sense for me to decide who we make an example of in the industry. I think the industry knows the people at the top, the best the most talented recognize the best and the most talented. And I want my guests to be calling people out. Who do you respect and admire? You know, and the tools and services that they're just talking about organically in conversation. I want these tools and services to steer the ship. I want to pick up the clues. I want to turn over rocks. And that's what's happening. But this approach to podcasting is very, honestly, expensive. Travel, time, people. It takes our team, and I need the resources to support this team. So if you are finding value in this podcast, please support our sponsors. Use our affiliate links. Share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry. If we're going to transform the industry, we need to share knowledge. We need this information to get out there. So please help me get this information out there. If you do share this content, please tag Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast on Instagram so we can say thank you personally. And uh, if you are somebody who is interested in maybe developing a career in media, social media, videography, editing, and if you have a passion for the hospitality industry and you want to go to the best restaurants in the country and interview these individuals and eat their food and, and, and document their food, please reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. I'm looking to grow my team. Uh, Sam is doing an amazing job. He helped us create amazing standards, but one month, two months on the road isn't just possible for everybody. So we're looking for somebody who's looking to have an adventure and somebody who, who may be would love to do this stuff, but they don't have the budget to get started. I have the tools. I'll give you the tools. So please reach out to me. And I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this possible. We already said, Sam, thank you so much, Sam Hall. And then Jared Parisi for his editing and copywriting in the back end. It takes an army. I'm grateful for mine. That's it for today. Until next time. Peace out.